Hello, sir. Hey, man. How's it going? It's going well. Yeah? Happy happy recording day. Yeah, you too. I'm re-realizing something about myself these days. Mm-hmm. What's that? I am, I am at my worst for the last third of a project. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> that phase where it's like, I figured out the project, and I know all the things, and I've done lots of the things, but I, all I can see is like the remaining things, and, and that I'm just... I'm terrible in this phase. I'm still making progress. I'm still getting stuff done. It's fine. There's no... I'm not like saying this is an emergency, but just mentally, I'm like, I don't want to do any more videos. I want to do any of this stuff. Like I I just wish they were done and I can move on to the next new thing. Yeah. So it's just like starting to feel like a slog at this point? A little bit, yeah. Usually, I have a video done by like Wednesday or... Yeah, yeah Wednesday-ish or Tuesday-ish and it's Thursday and I, I haven't finished a video this week. I will record one today, but... Um, you know, it's just just slower than usual. Do you think it's a factor of like two thirds of the project or is it some kind of more like fixed duration? Like if you had said this was a five video course, if you got two videos in, do you think you would have felt the same or would have been like race through the five and now you're good? That's a good question, actually. I'm not totally sure. My guess is it's a little bit of both, actually. To me, there's something psychologically about, okay, I can see the finish line Basically, all of the questions have been answered. Now I just have to actually go through the motions of finishing these things up. That part doesn't excite me. And so I imagine that might kick in regardless. But also, yeah, it has been a decent amount of time that I've been working on this. And so it's, it's, it's lost a little bit of luster now. That's, that's always been an argument for, or one of the reasons for keeping features scope really small. Um, it's like, I, I've been on some long protracted projects before where... It's all new stuff. You're doing a lot of like cool architecture. You're working out the, all the you know initial details of how it's going to go, and then and then just like taking it through the finish line. Oftentimes is the most psychologically challenging part of it. So if you can keep them small and bite sized we try to like ship. You know, we try to get code into production even if it's not ready. We throw it up behind a feature flag. We've been doing that more and more now because that feeling of shipping small chunks out allows you to kind of it almost resets it so it's like all right now i'm starting a fresh new task that's really just a subtask of this really big thing yes i have been getting some of that feeling from just shipping out samples after i finish a video and that definitely has helped for sure if i hadn't communicated any of this to people it would have been a much worse process and also (laughs) speaking of cutting scope i've decided that i'm going to do eight videos Okay. <laughs> so I've, I've, I guess I've done a little bit of both. I've shipped early and I've also trimmed the scope down a little bit. I have two more that I know I want to do. And after that, I felt like I was just kind of like grasping. And I was like, well, this would be okay-ish. But I feel like I've covered the, the core fundamental things I wanted in the course with eight. And so I'm just going to stop. I'm closing in on what I think is like a rough schedule of finishing a video this week and then another one next week. And then I'm off for most of the week after that, going to a lake house with some friends and I think then the week after that, I will basically prep the launch. And then I expect to launch the course the first week of September. And that is, is that coinciding with the time when you're actually moving? We talked about that last time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of it is. It's, it's up in the air about when moving will happen. Because if my landlord can find tenants who want to move in for September 1st, I'll leave September 1st or before then. And if not, I might be here till October 1st or maybe November. Who knows? My guess is they will find somebody because this is like a, a good a good apartment in a good spot. So it, September 1st, I think, is definitely possible. And like someone saw the apartment yesterday, so they're getting interest. Got it. Have you worked out kind of your launch sequence? Uh, no, I definitely have not. 
Uh, I've done one of these like uh, Big Bang-ish type launches before when I did that thing with OptiGrim with Upcase and Ruby Tapas. So I've I've sort of put together a sequence that is kind of similar of like, hey, there's a limited time availability of a thing. In this case, I think the, the limited availability will be the discount, like an early access phase. So I think for maybe a week or so, I will offer the course at a discount off the normal price and then raise the price. And so we'll have the effect of that time limited launch thing happening. But I've been I've been chatting through some ideas with people, so I have some some rough ideas, but no clear plan yet. Obviously, like email your list at least a few days before you say like it's generally available, right? It's kind of like oh yeah, hundred percent, yeah, definitely. Cool. I want to send out a thing at least like a week ahead of time, saying here's the date it's going to like open and close for the discount, and here's a summary of everything. Maybe you haven't opened every email, so here just so you know, these are the videos that are in it, and these are the things I'm teaching, and probably a couple of emails like that roughly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cool yeah but it'll be pretty awesome to get this thing live it's been a lot of build-up so the pay i i'm hoping the payoff will feel will feel good yeah as it turns out it's been a been a few months of work huh like i always picture these things like oh it'll be like just you know maybe two months you could knock out a course done mm-hmm. but you know it always takes a little longer than you expect huh of course yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's okay though i mean it hasn't been like arduous so you know it's 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 been a thing that I I'm actually like fairly I'm reasonably pleased with how I've been able to to continually chip away at this thing. Big projects are tough to work on, I find psychologically just cuz they feel intimidating and insurmountable. But I think I did a pretty good job of just thinking like okay, just 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 the next video, just the next video and thinking of them as as discrete units which are a little more easy to tackle. Yep. From my perspective, you've done a good job of it, so. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I've also scheduled my first uh, meetup visit, which is going to be the Atlanta Ruby Users Group on September 13th. The Ben Orenstein Worldwide Tour of the Ruby meetup scene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that'll be one of the stops for sure. I haven't submitted yet, but I'm hoping to get approved to speak at Boston Ruby Group the day before. So I'm going to have to basically fly to Atlanta during the, during the day, I guess. It's gonna. It's gonna be. There's gonna be a lot of crazy travel in September. That is becoming quite clear. You just run on stage and be like, "My my flight just landed. I just got here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hello, Atlanta." <laughs> That's right. Or or just or stream it from the airport or on in the, yeah. in the Uber from the airport <laughs> to the meetup from thirty thousand feet in flight Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got that like last thirty percent uh, struggle a little bit, but I'm I'm still still moving forward, and I think it'll be over soon. Yeah, good man. Are you already thinking about the next the next project you want to tackle, or are you trying not to think about that? Not right now? really. I've sort of been almost intentionally not like it's. There's a this big question mark for what happens after the after the launch and after the tour, and it's a, it's a question mark and like when will I get an apartment and will, when will I move and what will I want to do after professionally and and I'm just kind of being like I, I don't know, and just trying to be be relaxed in the chaos. Anytime I try to look too many steps out, you know, there's a lot of domino pieces that could end up falling in that time. Like maybe you do this tour and another like business idea kind of falls out of all the conversations you have over the course of this. Or maybe you learn something new launching this course and it's like, hey, now I have a new idea that fell out of this and it ties well with the previous work I've done. And anytime I try to like anticipate too many domino pieces out ahead, it's usually not a very productive exercise and just makes me feel more stressed or uneasy about the future so i think it's definitely i think it's good yeah yeah being open to that serendipity i think is useful and planning a little bit too much i think can close you off to some of those things it's like oh well i did say i was going to do this you have this like sunk cost idea creeping up 
So uh, you emailed me this week about a topic you wanted to talk about. Yeah. I caught one of the recent episodes of the Giant Robots podcast, our former podcasting home. And it was one where Chad was interviewing Seth Godin, um, who I'm sure many folks out there know. And that one piqued my interest, especially because I was like, oh, Seth Godin. Um, I, I take it that Chad knows Seth from just over the years. It sounded like they were at least familiar with each other. Anyways, I was expecting just a, a typical interview of a smart author, entrepreneur, blogger type person. Um, but within the first few minutes, it was clear that there was a lot of, well, the best word is anguish on Chad's voice, I think, as he was kind of thinking about some tough business challenges that ThoughtBot's going through right now. So it was a very raw, honest conversation where he's basically like, look, I'm in a, I'm in a little bit of a personal crisis. The company's not in a crisis, but as the leader of this company, I am feeling like we are, what used to be our special sauce has become commoditized. And so then Seth basically, he kind of, you know, set the stage and then Seth went off for about 20 minutes, just dropping, just kind of tying together a lot of the concepts that he has written his books about. And I've maybe read one of Seth's books, but now I'm interested in reading more of them after this conversation, because he sounds like a crazy smart guy. Um, And I think could synthesize a lot of these topics into some, I don't know, just some good ideas. But um, yeah, you're kind of talking about like the, the dip that you experience in business and crossing the chasm, which is not Seth's idea, but a book I'm familiar with, where you're kind of moving from innovators and early adopters into the mass market. Yeah, I, I feel like it was a really good uh, conversation. Do you agree? 100%. And in fact, I was super impressed with both of them. And I meant to send an email to Chad, but I, I didn't get to it. But so I was really impressed with how open and honest Chad was. Like he was willing to make the podcast about his feelings and struggles, which is hard. And so that that I thought was great. And it make just it just makes good radio. It's interesting and real and honest. I'm always super impressed with Seth. I think he's just a, an awesome human. But there was a particular moment where it's, they've been talking for like 20 something minutes and Chad goes, wow, I didn't really expect this to be all like so personally about me. Yeah. <laughs> and Seth goes, well, we don't have to publish this at all if you don't want to. Right. Yeah. And I thought that was just like such a generous thing to do. Right. He's like, if you want to turn this into just the, f- I just talked to you for 25 minutes about, you know, what you're struggling with and, and there's no, you know, marketing upshot of this for me, then I don't care. So classy. Yeah, I agree. He immediately recognized at the beginning. He's like, wow, well, first of all, thank you for being so raw and honest to your listeners and to me. Like he was honored that he was throwing this out in a somewhat public forum and giving him the opportunity to really dig deep. Because, you know, when you keep it surface level, I mean, we've experienced this before when we've had conversations, we've gotten pretty raw and deep on this podcast and in prior episodes. And um, I don't know, it's I feel like it's always more productive when you're just when you're just honest and not kind of cagey or like. Suppose there was someone who was in this circumstance, what would you advise them to do, you know? There's so much of a difference between asking the question you really want to ask and asking the question that's like close but safer. It's just it's night and day to me. Like there's something like you cross this line and all of a sudden the quality of the conversation changes dramatically if you're willing to really go there. And I would say they they got there, which is awesome. You seemed to feel some kinship or feel inspired by or something like what was what was it about that episode that that struck you besides the honesty? Well, it got me thinking about both the phase that drip is in right now and also where I want to go in the future, which are two things that are kind of top of mind for me all the time. And, you know, we talked last episode about goals about or two episodes ago, I guess, about, you know, founder's dilemma and what are you optimizing for and 
So as I think about like what parts of business do I really enjoy? And also this episode got me thinking kind of about what types of markets do I enjoy serving? Um, and, you know, if you're building a business, Seth brought up the example of like Basecamp versus Slack, where I mean, Basecamp, by all measures, I think has crossed the chasm where like they are a wildly successful business, um, but they have not crossed the chasm at the level that Slack has, where Slack is really infiltrating businesses across the board, not even related to the tech industry. Whereas Basecamp kind of has their their curated market where they're like, there's certain things they will not do. They will, you know, they want to dictate the product roadmap. They take in feedback from people, but ultimately it's a curated, opinionated product. And comparatively, Slack is much bigger, has many hundreds of thousands of users and is a relatively simpler product that is essentially dumbed down to be catered to the mass market so that a wide array of, of people can um, understand it and use it. But they make trade-offs in that process where like, you have to build, you have to have a different mindset when you're building product for the mass market versus building it for a curated you know, set of people who quote unquote get it. One of the kind of the paradoxes that Seth was talking about is that you really can't have it both ways. Like you cannot serve both the innovators and the mass market at the same time. You have to choose. Part of me wants to say like, can you have it both ways? Like, can you, can you make the ramp, the ramp to understanding how to use a product? Can you make that gradual enough where it's like a simple tool for the mass market who aren't super sophisticated, but then the people who get it are able to level up within the same product? And I don't know. I don't know if you have thoughts about whether that, whether you feel like that's possible, whether you feel like that's something you would want to attain or even try to attain, or if it's like, I don't know. Do you think you really have to pick? That's a good question. Yeah, it feels like you could. It it, it feels like an, a really high bar, but you possibly could achieve that in terms of like usability around a product. Uh, like you could hide the advanced stuff well enough, but still, still in in a pleasant way for advanced people. But I wonder if the challenge then becomes describing who it's for, like letting your market know it's right for them. Because if you talk to the masses in your marketing materials, then you miss out. Uh, people that are advanced assume it's not for them and vice versa. It feels like it would be tough in, in just a, a lot of ways. It wouldn't just, not just around product design. Yeah, but marketing and positioning. Yeah, branding. Like As I look at the stage that Drip's in right now, we, we've obviously found a nice, healthy set of innovators and early adopters. And that happened you know, a few years ago in our history. Drip is growing. We have a free plan. We have a lot of um, people who are newer to marketing automation in general who are adopting Drip. And we've been making a lot of usability improvements. Like that's been a, a good chunk of our time spent in dev cycles has been improving usability. So, you know, getting rid of fill in text boxes and adding drop downs instead. And just overall, like polishing all the flows, the various flows in the product. If I kind of analyze it, it's like, I think we are kind of edging deeper into the mass market and there's high demand for making the product feel more usable. Like the two are in contention on what I really love about Drip and what the direction that it's heading in the market where it's like we're we are penetrating more mass market. But some of my favorite parts and where I think some of the most valuable parts of Drip are is in the really cutting edge like things that we are exploring doing with automation. We almost need to make a choice perhaps on like, do we want to... Do we want to keep pushing the bar forward with um, automation, whether that's like building more machine learning into the product where it can 
do more intelligent things. Maybe the two are combined where it's like if we if we innovate in such a way where it actually becomes more attainable for a less sophisticated audience to use the product, then maybe that's a way to marry the two where like your innovation is innovation in the in the form of making the product more usable. Maybe that's the way we can still continue to innovate and also make the product more usable for mass market. I don't know. I'm really just thinking off the cuff now, but <laughs> these are the kinds of things that my brain starts spinning on when I'm when I'm hearing conversations like this. I was thinking of something as you were speaking, which is that this kind of reminds me of the discussion we had a couple weeks ago about how sometimes you're the right CEO for a phase of the company and less the right CEO for a later phase of the company. Because you, you said, I, I'm, I'm trying to decide what I like to do. And it's like, maybe you're like the CTO of the innovator early adopter type product. And if you hit this point where it's like, let's take this mass market, you're just like, I'm just not, I'm just not into this. I'm not the guy for this. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that might be, it's funny. It's like I named, I named my blog scaling SaaS, right? And I almost feel like I'm, it's almost a dishonest thing. Cause to me, it like, to me, scaling drip in pre-acquisition was growing from just me and Rob hanging out in his office on his patio in Fresno <laughs> to growing to a team of, you know, a handful of developers and some people doing marketing and some people doing demos. And um, to me, that was like, we are scaling beyond what a lot of people get to um, in, in their early stage SaaS companies, right? But to a lot of people, scaling means like uh, either raising funding or just, you know, dramatically increasing your headcount or going after some crazy high revenue goals. And it's like, I don't know, like, I don't know if that's my, I'm kind of interested in seeing how that whole process works. And I'm learning a lot about that um, right now at Drip. But is that like where I desire to be in the future is something I've been thinking a lot about. Like, if I were to go start a new company today, would I aspire to say, all right, within within these years, I want to be at X millions of dollars in revenue and to get there i need to do x y and z or am i thinking more in the sense of like i want to build really innovative product that's serving you know a a segment of people who get it and maybe i'm not trying to unseat a giant competitor in the space who's gone mass market but maybe i'm just trying to carve out my chunk of their market of people who have outgrown them and want something better yeah i love that question I, i love that both are valid approaches my brother works for a software company and they exclusively do their 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 SaaS and they exclusively do deals that are like 40k a year and up like annual prepay type thing to giant companies and that's just they decided that's that's what they're going to do and it of course changes it changes everything about the DNA of the company that they chose that but they're actually doing they're doing really well in that niche and uh, it's it's totally valid or you could say we're never going to do 40k deals I'm into like these solo people. I just, I, it's, it's great that you could do, you could do either. Yeah. And I think you can be successful either way. I think one thing that I've tended to do as I'm thinking about like, all right, if I want to take on some big audacious idea, I want to both innovate and then my mind naturally takes me to like, well, if I'm going to do this though, I have to unseat the giant 800 pound gorilla in the room. And it's like, I don't know if you actually have to do both and you should be careful about aspiring to be to think like I'm going to innovate and at the same time I'm going to take over, you know, I'm going to take all the market share from this incumbent. It's like um that's probably not achievable because you know the way I would be approaching it is probably for you know a few percent of their market could actually you know actually cares to use your new innovative thing and the rest of them are content with the 
more basic, less featured tool that has reached the masses. Right. Yeah. And do you want to build a company of the size that's required to unseat them? Yeah. That's another... Because maybe you could do it more efficiently, but how much more efficiently? Maybe you still need 50 people or 100 people. Right. Yep. Which is where I think, you know, Basecamp, now they've been at it for, what, 18 years now or something. Crazy amount of time since 99, right? And they have managed to get pretty large. I mean, their their revenue numbers are not public. People speculate it's in around 100 million bucks a year. And so that's good size by any measure. But they're still like 50 employees or under, I think. Um, and so, but it's taken them a long time to get there. You know, they've bootstrapped and growing organically. And I don't know, it's hard to imagine also like being at something for 18 years before you get to potentially that scale but Mm -hmm. i don't know it's all trade-offs i guess right yeah i mean i but like why is that hard to imagine like do you do you care about that number that much does that impact your enjoyment of working on the thing no i don't think so i don't think so yeah i mean i think if you're trying if you're trying to get to kind of the freedom line that we talked about where you know it's a certain dollar figure in the bank that that grants you freedom to allocate resources how you want and do what you want then there are paths that are that are potentially quicker to get there and then paths that are less quick. And I think if you're if you're growing organically, I mean, that's decidedly a less quick path to getting there, but it's also lower risk, I think. So I guess it's like, yeah, that's where your yeah. risk lies. Yeah. To, to me, the interesting thing they figured out is the way they want to work. Like they, they figured out what works for them and what they enjoy and a thing that they would be happy doing for that long and build a, build a company around that. And then the the financial success came anyway. I feel like the the financial freedom bit is probably less happiness inducing than, hey, I work at a company that I really like and we have an awesome culture and we work with good people and we figured out a lot of things that just make us feel good about the world. Right. It's like you can have all that, but at what cost? Um, And I'm not sure I'm willing to sacrifice my happiness, my satisfaction with my work my stress levels. <laughs> so, yeah. I So I took like a page and a half of notes from just quickly writing notes from that conversation. And uh, yeah, what, you, what struck you? What'd you write down? So the first bit was the, you cannot serve both innovators and mass market at the same time. This is a paraphrasing of Seth, but he said something to the effect of, if you want to serve innovators forever, you have to continually reinvent yourself. And that means like throwing it all away and doing it again, um, which is really like painful to imagine doing, you know, um, that's funny. That appeals to me a lot. Does it? S- speaking of the the last 30% of a project. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm so happy. And at the beginning. Yeah. When the, when yeah. the paper is, is fresh or when the, when the project is fresh, the paper's blank. I guess it like fills, I don't know. It feels like, um, early on in a project that's like a new a new SaaS or something like that like there's a lot of risk at the beginning phase and i guess it depends on how that risk um affects you but i remember like the the early days of drip where a lot of we were still searching for product market fit and a lot of things were unknown and as soon as we crossed that line where it's like i think we got we got it we got it locked in it was after we launched our first iteration of um automation rules when when like things started to move along we were marketing and people were converting that was like a big um moment of relief where it's like we've crossed this line that is like all right at least we've got 
a business that is growing at a healthy rate. It's not like rocket ship. It's not exponential, you know, but it's it's we we figured out a formula that works. And to imagine like shortly after you get there, it's like, all right, time to uh, time to let people who want to take it mass market run with it and now start over all, all over again, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, that phase might be a little bit longer, right? It might be a couple of maybe. years where you before you need to, to blow it all up and start over. Yeah. I, I imagine think you would have to relish. Industry. You'd have to relish in your product market fit for a little while before torching it to yeah, the yeah. ground and starting over again. Totally. Um, and like maybe torching it actually involves like spinning it off and you know mm-hmm. enjoying a windfall and then moving mm-hmm. to the new thing. So there's less of that stress or pressure. Yep. Um, they kind of talked about like I think Chad was trying to figure out how could how could Thoughtbot like double down on what the formula they've worked out where it's like they have they have a formula that's working they're getting a flow of customers in it's not necessarily as innovative as it used to be but they figured out how to make the consulting engine work and so they were trying to trying to um, think about how thoughtbot could keep that going but then also at the same time start some start doing something new and innovative and i liked the examples that seth brought up where it's like you know google has google labs where they're it allows their engineers to work on cool new tech, but at the same time, those engineers are probably working on Google Forms, which is a stupid, simple product that can be used, you know, by the masses. Um, and it's like instead of instead of siloing, like saying this team's working on the cool stuff and this other team's working on the boring stuff, it's like turning it on its head, where it's like maybe everyone or a lot of folks get to have their hand in both. I like mm-hmm. I like that idea. Um, yeah. Like a 20% time type yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you do that at all at Drip? We don't really have that formalized. I mean, I feel like we try to I feel like we try to make sure that that folks are happy with what they're working on and that any given engineer is not like slogging through some really nasty part of the code base or some just like I don't know, project that's not very fulfilling and just like continuously doing that. I think we try to mix it up, but it's not like formalized. I don't know. Um, I think that a lot of that just comes through like talking to your team and, and finding out if they're satisfied with the projects they've been working on. Yeah, I'm, I was actually thinking less around like person happiness and more like, do you take time out to invest for the future type? Of, like we should we should have a tool for this and like let's actually like formalize this into a new project or a new repo or a new whatever we've done that like a few times i don't know like one example is um when we're moving to a new deployment strategy code aws code deploy and we wanted like the ability to be able to track um track a deployment um well this is the internal tooling so it's not customer facing but just one example oh, like, that, that that counts too yeah, yeah. like we, that's what uh, i was thinking of actually internal stuff yeah so like we want to be able to track um progress of the deployment and the way it works is kind of like fired off and then okay it's running and we can't really have visibility unless you log into aws and go like go to the page where the deployment's running and check and refresh it and see what the status is so one of our engineers built a a tool it calls deploy watch and he open sourced it and it's like a little go app that will just like hook in and look at any deploys that are running and then it'll constantly refresh so you can just have it in your console and it'll just like update in line as different servers finish um, nice and yeah, it was totally cool with like I working on that like on that. company time. Yeah, I I've I've seen like job ads for certain companies for like a tools team, 
and I, that that appeals to me so much the idea of like writing programs that help other people write programs better or faster or or even even if it's not tool internal dev tools even if it's just like write a thing for the marketing team or for the whatever team i had this experience i used to work at uh, dana farber two jobs ago which is a cancer uh, hospital and research institute and i was on a little team of rails developers and we would go into things like the clinical trials department and be like they're like we're dying over here we got 40 people editing the same spreadsheet every day uh, and like there's a filing cabinet full of paper and when we want to check the thing we like open the filing cabinet and we would write stupid simple crud rails apps for them and they'd be like oh my god and it was such a satisfying experience like it didn't matter that the app was simple it was like look how much better we made their lives that just yeah. felt so good it's a nice luxury to be able to do that i mean i feel like some teams like that's kind of the last part to that they think about of the, the internal tooling um i know when we joined the lead pages fold like some of the support folks were really impressed with our admin area we call it faucet get it drip faucet <laughs> um and so like i don't know we just we started it from day one and i think that's why it was not super like thrown together last minute so it did have some styling to it like it was just some basic styles and um we kind of were able to build it out over time and now we have our the support engineer on our team is kind of the one who takes requests from the support team and they say like, hey, I, I could really use this new screen where it like minimizes the clicks and I can like easily log in as this user from this context. And he's like, OK, right. cool. And then he just like adds a button for it. And that sounds very fun, actually. Yeah, it's yeah. it's cool. And it's like totally the kind of thing where like I couldn't envision what the support team needs. They're going to tell us like, right. oh, my gosh, it would save me so much time if I could just do this one thing from the screen and be able to satisfy them is really, really fun. I think a great admin area is probably an under invested in tool for SaaS apps. I've limped along without one in the past because I have console chops, but it's nice to have that. Like if you actually make it a first class thing in your app and like you write tests for it and make sure it continually works and it's not ugly and does useful things. I think that's pretty awesome. It is making like um like we always queuing is always a challenge at Drip. So we've had we now have like a, a growing queue activity page where it's like we used to say, like, how many broadcasts are sending right now at this moment? Well, let's log into the console. Let's search for broadcasts that are in ascending state. And then let's, oh, we want to know how many subscribers are sending to. Okay, let's go through and count the subscribers. So we've, like, gradually rolled up these things onto one page where it's like you load this page and instantly you can see everything that's active in the queues right now. And, you know, by the way, who's hitting our API really hard right now? I don't know. Let's add that there, too. So we have, like, an activity tracker for API use. Um, and that is, like made the troubleshooting process way less stressful because it's like when you get instant visibility it's like running all the same queries that you would have run manually it's just not having to type those keystrokes and ssh in is just like way less stressful so totally yeah. i think a good dashboard's real satisfying mm -hmm. it is and now we've been like getting prometheus and grafana set up so you can like i don't know we're, we're edging into building better dashboards where it's where like if we're trying to to diagnose trouble in one particular area maybe we want to see like uh queue volumes and also database activity and um request volume and you can like mix, mix and match them into one dashboard so that you know instead of opening four tabs and kind of trying to flip between them and spot you know trouble you can just like boom throw them on the same dashboard that's been really cool he brought up the example of newton running shoes and how like they basically, 
have decided to focus on running shoes only, right? And this is a, a loose quote from Seth. He said that like doubling down on the edge that you've got is worth it. And that's what they've, that's what Newton has done. If they tried to compete with all the other uh, product lines that Nike has, they would probably not succeed. Uh, but they've carved out a niche in running shoes and they doubled down on that. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're getting a little long. You want to wrap it up? Yeah, let's wrap it. Awesome. Uh, we can definitely throw a link to that giant robots episode for sure yeah recommend everyone t- to listen to it yeah i recommend listening to just about anything seth shows up on yeah such a, <laughs> just a good person yep it's, it's a good voice to have in your head totally if you'd like to access those show notes uh you can go to artofproductpodcast.com that's that right that's right yeah yeah i think so excellent and uh, we'll see you next time thanks for listening see ya